Scriptural Sexual Ethics, point number four. Converting the Christian bedroom from hell on earth to heaven on earth. And what is the line for the unmarried? The reality of many Christian bedrooms is that men feel that they lack sex. They lack the getting of enough sex. And if you were in a room and you could get many young Christian men talking, that's exactly what they would say. If you then went into another room and spoke with their wives, what they will often say is that uh, uh, their husbands seem to pursue them so strongly in these things and, and they feel like they're, they're objectified. They're just objects for their husband's fulfillment. And so what they do is they cry headache. They say, look, I can't, I can't do that tonight. I have a headache. And that goes on and the man becomes frustrated and the woman becomes frustrated. That is the reality of many Christian bedrooms and a constant frustration for both men and women. When sex becomes the end rather than the thing or the icon to point us to Christ, then sex itself becomes an idol. We must realize, men must realize that the wife and women must realize that the husband is not the ultimate fulfillment, but they are an icon pointing us to Christ. The peace of the interior gaze, the way it was, the way it became, and the Christ-like restoration. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, it says, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? So you see that prior to sin, Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed, the scriptures say. If the gaze from the man is lustful, a woman who has been married to a man for even 20 years can feel embarrassed and she covers herself in front of her husband. But if the gaze is proper and not lustful, in marriage there can be total openness and lack of shame. But we also must realize what it's been through, the conditioning, and we cannot expect it to recover the proper state immediately. It can sometimes take years for this level of trust to be restored. Let's look more at the scriptures. In Ephesians chapter 4, Verse 17 through 20, Ephesians 4, 17 through 20, it says, So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they have become callous, and have given themselves over to sensuality, for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. So you see, it says that what the Gentiles do, which is wrong, is that they give themselves to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness, in verse 19. Remember what lust is? It is taking that which is not mine for my own gain. This impurity with greediness and he tells us in verse 17 that we are to walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. We are not to walk in this way. 
So how are we to walk? Well, look in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be reading Ephesians 5, verses 1, 2, 3, and 12. Ephesians 5, 1 through 3, and verse 12. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. Verse 12. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. You see what he says in verse 1, and in, in, I'm sorry, in verse 2. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. And then he says in verse 3 that there is to be no impurity or greed even named among us. So you see the contrast between the way the Gentiles walk and the way he is ca- calling us to walk. And then if you look down in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 21, it says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So how are husbands and wives supposed to walk? To be subject to one another. But look what a poor job our evangelical Bibles do. They split verse 21 from verse 22 and they'll put a line in there that says something to the effect that marriage like Christ and the church. Now they start talking about marriage, they say. Well, no, really that heading was never in there. 21 was supposed to come right before 22. This is all part of the same passage. We are to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then in verse 22, Wives, be submissive to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being Savior of the body. But as the church is submissive to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So it talks about submission, this, this, this thing of submission in wives, but it also says up in verse 21 that we are t- to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. There is a mutual submission, and then it starts, the, the scripture begins to explain that more deeply. The wife is supposed to have a role of submission toward her husband, and the husband's role is to give himself for his wife as Christ gave himself for the church. In verse 31 of Ephesians chapter 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. You see, he goes back and forth talking about husband and wife and then Christ and the church. The human anatomy, if you just look at it, the man's body cries out that he is the initiator of the gift. And the woman's body cries out that she is the receiver of the gift. God stamped the prescription of Christ and the church in the anatomy of our bodies. Could he have made it clear? It's stamped in the anatomy of our bodies. And then in Ephesians 5.31, the two become one flesh. And this one flesh union is a picture of the union with Christ and the church. 
This is why God is revealed in masculine terms when he's revealed in the flesh. God is neither male nor female, but in the flesh he took a male role since he is the initiator of all free gifts. Indeed, he often reveals himself and his work with female qualities. For example, in Isaiah 66, verse 12, Isaiah 66, verse 12 says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream, and you will be nursed, and you will be carried on the hip, and you will be fondled on the knees. You see, the qualities that he speaks of are as a mother, a nursing mother. He refers to himself and his qualities as a nursing mother, as one who carries a baby on the hips, as one who fondles a baby on her knees. And then, in Luke chapter 13, verse 34, Luke 13, 34, Jesus said, How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. This is what Jesus says. I wanted to be as a hen gathering her brood. But when, so, so you see, when he's not in the flesh, he takes on many motherly qualities. As a mother caring and even nursing her child. But when he's in the flesh, he comes in the initiators or male terms. The paradigm of master and slave is foreign to the gospel. We are to, it says, submit yourselves one to another in verse 21 of Ephesians 5. Jesus, in fact, takes the form of a slave as one to be beaten to show us that he has no intention of enslaving us. He allows himself to be beaten to show us that he has no intention of beating us and enslaving us. He, being master, did this. Look, uh, it says that, that women, you don't have to be with men that wound you. You're not obliged to allow yourself to be used by men. You don't have to live that way. The genius of Paul is to take the culture of the times in Ephesians 5 and turn it to show that the ultimate is for the wife to be the recipient of grace from the husband, just as the church is the recipient of grace from Jesus. In Ephesians 5.21, it talks about submission. Understand this in the sense of a free gift. We as evangelicals understand free gift better than most. And we often wonder why others don't embrace this free gift offered by the one who gave himself for us. Submission. Sub means under. Mission means sent with a purpose. Sub means under. Mission means sent with a purpose. Wife, permit your husband to give the gift of himself to you. And that is not always easy. In John, John chapter 13, verses 5 through 8, it says, Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus said to him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no part of me. You see, Peter wanted to to turn Jesus away and say, I don't want you to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part of me. 
it is not always easy to receive a free gift. But in Ephesians 4, we're told Christians must no longer live as Gentiles in their lustful ways, corrupted by lust. We're to put on the nature of God, which is a self-sacrificing love, and also a love that can learn to receive from the other. Ephesians 5 often seems demeaning to women if it's viewed through the lens of fallenness. You either permit yourself to be used by men or you play the same game and try to dominate men. But Paul reclaims the original plan through genius to take the culture of the day and springboard it for the advancement of the gospel and the deliverance of women. Be submissive to one another. It is a mutual submission out of reverence for Christ. A redeemed and mature sexual attraction is a man who wants to deeply respect his wife in a proper recognition of the glory of this woman. Woman, in in return, submits by coming under the man's mission to give the gift. Man is to give himself totally to his wife, to the point of being crucified for her dignity. Woman, in return, is to receive her husband as she does even the Lord's Supper, saying, I believe. At times, that may mean a humility to receive the gift from your husband, even though he does not live up to the fullest image of a husband that you have. But out of reverence for Christ, you receive the gift. Man is to reiterate the wedding vows to love her freely, totally, faithfully, and fruitfully, even in this very act. In Ephesians chapter 6, the next chapter in Ephesians, verse 14, it says, Gird up your loins with truth. Loins speak of the reproductive organs. And this is why there's that common term in Scripture, the fruit of my loins. You shall not tell a lie with your body. What you say with your flesh speaks volumes. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 12 and verse 16, Song of Solomon 4, 12 and 16 says this, the bridegroom says, in verse 12, a garden locked is my sister, my bride, a rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. The bride says in verse 16, may my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. You see, he again first acknowledges her as his sister. Now the garden speaks of the womb. He says, you are a rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. The garden speaks of the womb. A woman holds the key to that lock. Men find women mysterious, and yet a woman is master of her own mystery. If you really view her as master of her own mystery and key holder of the garden, then you cannot barge in. She has every right to say no. But that is where you must stand. My experience is that when asked in true love and self-donation, she'll not often say no. In fact, she will regret the evening that she said no and be all the more ready on the next evening. Harbor no resentment. It is her garden, not yours. It is her gift to open to you or to refuse. Some women, due to past conditioning or experiences of abuse or promiscuity, are so wounded that an an understanding husband needs to work gently with her, sometimes over a period of years, 
to see her properly responding in these areas. Authentic love does not impose its gift on another. It offers its gift and then awaits the beloved's response. Offering a gift makes us vulnerable to the other. Authentic love does not violate the dignity of the woman. Marriage does not legitimize lust or using our wives for our own selfish pleasure. Then our wives would rightly recoil because they feel that they are being violated and they're correct. But know that when the gift is rightly presented, our wives are made to want to accept the gift as much as we want to give it. They may, however, be less inclined for a time due to conditioning from the past. So also she has an antenna from God to know when the gift is insincere. Some may quote to me 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4. 1 Corinthians 7, 4, which says, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. To which I will say, Amen. Now let me quote to you Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28. Matthew 20, 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to become first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, he turns the whole thing around. You want to know what having authority over another means? It means, according to Christ, that you become their servant. And if you want to become the greatest over them, you have to become their slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. It is Gentile to exercise authority over another. Dominating another. It is not Christ's way. He said, it is not this way among you. He turns the whole thing around. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, it says, but I want you to understand, 1 Corinthians 11, 3, but I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. Man is the head of woman and God is the head of Christ. And what does Jesus, man's head and man's authority do? He comes to serve. In order to demonstrate that he has no intention of forcing men to obey him, he permitted himself to be beaten and crucified. Jesus says, just to show you that I have no intention of abusing you, I will permit you to abuse me. Therefore, authority that Jesus speaks of never means lording it over, that is, Gentile or foreign to the gospel. Authority over actually means that I will die for you and for your dignity and for your right to choose. God himself even permits us to choose wrongly rather than forcing us to do what is right. Because without such freedom, there could be no true love. So how does a man show love for his wife? First of all, by the daily practice of redemption, as we discussed before. By daily praying that prayer of redemption. Secondly, recalling that true love means that I sacrifice myself for you, being crucified for her dignity. I will never use you for my own lustful gain. 
Men, if you don't love like this, then your love is not the love of Christ. The new Adam, Jesus, took the hit and gave himself for the bride. You die for her dignity. Before sin, they were naked and unashamed. After sin, there was shame in their nakedness. Before sin, the looks signified a desire to love as God loves. Both were holy, so there was the peace of the interior gaze. Where lust is, there is a lack of, the inter- a lack of peace with the interior gaze. Now women, I know that you've been looked upon by men for their own kicks. That was never meant to have happened. Forgive me. Forgive them. Now take the flip side of that. A man looking at you to affirm you and see you in the image of God. Women, isn't that what you want? The majority of the responsibility lies with the man since he is the initiator to ensure that the gift is sincere. So what is the proper bedroom conduct? Let me first start by asking a question. How strong do you think a marriage would be if the couple regularly violated their wedding vows? If there was a regular violation of the wedding vows, how strong do you think a marriage would be? How strong do you think a marriage would be if the couple regularly renewed their wedding vows? You know, I can show my love to my wife by taking out the trash. I can also take out the neighbor's trash without violating my wedding vows. But the greatest difference occurs in the conjugal union with my wife. The best way to renew the wedding vows is by a sincere gift of yourself to the other. And there is a gift that is reserved exclusively for the other. What more does a woman want than a husband who will serve her as Christ does the church? The same intensity that you men have to give the gift, your wife has been made to receive the gift. When you get it right, it really works. The woman opens her heart to receive and then gives back the gift. It is not a passive receiving, but an active one, a mutual self-donation. But as soon as you force someone to receive the gift, you've moved from love to domination. Even God does not force his gift upon us, and he respects our right to choose wrongly more than he would force us to choose that which is right. God loves us so much that he respects our freedom to reject his love. As one author puts it, while consummating your marriage, bringing your wife to peak pleasure along with you, renew your marriage covenant by saying, I will love you freely, totally, faithfully, and fruitfully. Bringing her to peak pleasure at the same time the man is at the peak, for altruistic reasons, not hedonistic reasons. It is a challenge to a man to contain himself for his wife's ultimate pleasure. That is a true self-sacrificing love. And in that way, I love to renew my wedding vows. Where I indeed say that I will love you freely, totally, faithfully and fruitfully at that moment of peak pleasure in the conjugal union. And what I ask you to do is accept where you are on the journey and grow together. But the greatest analogy to Christ and the church is the one flesh union of the man and the wife. And I so enjoy that one flesh union with my wife that I cry out regarding my union with Jesus 
Lord, bring it on. Now some may argue, well, you know, if, if, if we go through this, we're going to lose the spontaneity of sex. Let me tell you, a five-year-old can go and beat away on a piano and make noise spontaneously. But a concert pianist who has worked his entire life at perfecting his art can spontaneously walk up to, to a piano and make it live. And even a five-year-old that knows Mary had a little lamb is better than the banging on a piano. You pray and offer up the time and say that prayer to never use her for your own lustful gain and make request of the keyholder of the garden and when she is granted it, then make love with vigor. You will become more perfected at it with the use with use of this practice. But don't think that the spontaneity that the world has is anything compared to the beauty of the marriage that is, that is properly consummated. Well, what is the improper bedroom conduct? Well, we must realize that getting married does not automatically make sex okay. If a husband and a wife are just going through the motions and not being honest about the things that their renewal means or even knowingly oppose what their vows mean, they're not being faithful, but unfaithful to those vows. Marriage is not a magic wand in making what was sinful before marriage become fine after marriage. It is only what is in, in, it is intended to be if it is a renewal of the wedding vows. Even spouses can speak lies with their bodies. In Titus, verses, in Titus 1, verse 16, it says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. So you see, our bodies speak, and they can speak lies. How can you break wedding vows of free, total, faithful, and fruitful commitment? Well, let's consider free. What about marital rape? Violating a spouse's freedom. But you don't even have to go that far. Freedom means that you can decline if the only reason that you have sex is, to be, is because you cannot control your hormones, then you're not free, but in bondage to them. Because if you cannot say no, then your yes is devoid of meaning. You must give your yes freely, not just because you have an itch that needs scratching. Men, get your sexuality redeemed as we spoke of, so you can be free indeed. What about total self-giving? Total self-giving total self speaks of a lifelong commitment. How can such a promise be given outside the confines of marriage? Also, if you're not emotionally present to your spouse, for example, planning your activities for the next day during the very act, that is a lack of total self-giving. If you're emotionally distant or holding a grudge throughout the day or week without first seeking and being open to reconciliation, it would be like taking the Lord's Supper without searching oneself. How about faithfully? Or fidelity? What about fantasy? Using their body to commit adultery in the heart at the precise moment of renewing the vows. We need redemption, men. If you are bound by fantasy, do not despair. You can be free in Christ's death and resurrection if you're willing to die with Him and likewise be raised through redemption. So remember the redemption prayer. I thank you, Lord, for the beauty of this woman. She has been made in the image of God. 
May I never use her as an object of my own lustful gain and take that which is twisted in me because of sin and untwist it. And may I come to see my sexuality rightly. How about fruitfully? There must be an openness to children. So what does this mean for the unmarried? Now we can understand plainly why having sex before marriage is wrong. You have no wedding vows to renew. You're saying something with your bodies that isn't true. Are you really the others totally? For example, the rest of your life? Or fruitfully? Are you open to children outside the confines of marriage? Are you? If you say not a word, you speak this with your bodies and you therefore break the promise given by your bodies. The body speaks wedding vows in this intimate act. So am I saying that premarital sex is wrong? Yes, I am. You'd be dishonest with the other person, not seeking their best, because there would be no way to fulfill the free, total, faithful, and fruitful vows. Recall that true Christ-like love is looking out for the other's best interest, even to the point of being crucified for their best. Even when they lose the dignity of their own body, you show them dignity as being made in the image of God. So what is the line for the unmarried? As many college students often ask me. Let me quote from something written by Christopher West. Any physical behavior that aims to arouse the body in preparation for sexual intercourse, fondling each other's genitals or breasts, or even some kind of extended kissing or embracing, are not appropriate expressions for the unmarried. When there is no moral possibility of consummate love, it is unloving to arouse someone to the point of physical craving for intercourse or masturbation. The line was crossed a long time before. And I'm not speaking simply to modify our sexual behavior, but in transforming our hearts from the way the world loves to the way that Christ loves. How many of us can attest to the emptiness, guilt, isolation, and despair that arise following an illicit sexual experience? We search in vain for happiness. Only the most hardened heart can continue to feign solace in the afterglow of such an experience. So what is the line? Love so supersedes lust that when properly oriented through redemption, we discover that the simplest manifestation of affection, whether a look, a touch, or a gentle kiss, is more joyous and fulfilling than the most intense illicit sex encounter. Why? Because it's genuine, it's real, it's honest, it's true to what's appropriate in a given stage of relationship. It's not seeking to get anything. It's seeking to give and to affirm. It is true love. Seeking the other's best interest and their dignity as the one who's been made in the image of God. So let me summarize this section. The reality of many Christian bedrooms is that the men lack sex and the women cry headache. The scriptures say, Submit yourselves one to another. Sub means under, mission means sent with a purpose. Wife, permit your husband to give the gift of himself to you. And in Matthew 5 verse 20, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. 
It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. In Song of Solomon, chapter 4, verse 12 and 16, the bridegroom cries out, A garden locked is my sister, my bride, a rock garden locked, a spring sealed up. And the bride then says, May my beloved come into his garden and eat its choice fruits. This, she's first view, viewed as a sister, one whom he protects. And then the garden speaks of the womb. The woman holds the key to the garden and the man makes request. God loves us so much that he respects our freedom to reject his love. And you're not to lie with your body regarding free, total, faithful, and fruitful commitment. And outside of marriage, any physical behavior that aims to arouse the body in preparation for sexual intercourse, fondling each other's genitals or breasts or even some kinds of extended kissing or embracing are not appropriate expressions for the unmarried.